thank you, Professor Waldenberger, dear friends, uh, for your introduction and the invitation uh, to your beautiful institute. Congratulations of what you are achieving here. Um, you said uh, that I have met uh, Dr. Funamori for the first time. That's true in, in Tokyo, but of course we could have uh, colluded concerning uh, our <laughs> presentations. We could use the internet and the digital age to a certain extent. Therefore, that would have been possible. But the topic is uh, universities in the in the digi digital age. Um, I'm a president of a university, and therefore I used. Uh, to talking about uh, universities and referring to various aspects of universities. I'm not so sure uh, whether I can claim to be an expert uh, on, on the digital age, um, and therefore it's very good that uh, Mr. Dr. Funamori is around. And, uh, for example, I have heard for the first time the expression GAFAN, I must say, that is entirely new for me. Therefore, that's uh, one thing which I can take with me uh, back uh, to Germany. But what I will try to do is essentially I will not talk too much uh, about uh, my own university uh, or the situation of universities in Germany. Many of the issues and challenges uh, we face uh, as, a uni as universities are worldwide phenomena and therefore are quite uh, similar and I will sometimes refer to my own university or to the situation in Germany, but I will largely discuss this uh, more or less from uh, a global uh, perspective. Um, and there are many issues which are affecting uh, universities in these days. You have uh, these pressing demands, these uh, very intensive debates in the United States about ac academic freedom, uh, freedom of speech, uh, and so on. These are really difficult issues. Uh, and if you uh, talk to uh, colleagues uh, in uh, the United States uh, and even in the UK, they are very worried how this will affect the atmosphere at their universities. Of course, this has not directly nothing to do with, uh, with the digital age, but it's really a pressing concern among universities uh, in the US and uh, in the UK. What I will try to do essentially is um, to raise two questions, basically. And the first is, uh, what are the perspectives, what are the risks, what are uh, the opportunities uh, for higher education, for teaching at universities, for the future in the digital age? Therefore, what, does, what will the future bring uh, for higher education uh, and uh, teaching at university? And I've raised a similar, that's the second question, uh, what does the digital age uh, mean for research? What will the future uh, bring for research at um, university? Um, uh, the, the basis for my talk is essentially written. I have uh, a paper which I have written recently, and you can clearly get it uh, if you want to. And if you read this uh, paper, you will see uh, that my background uh, is uh, an economist, therefore I use I attack or tackle these uh, issues uh, with the eyes and with the perspectives uh, of an economist and try to find out what are the underlying economic issues involved in this. And in many respects, these are uh, 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 economic issues involved. And let me begin um, with uh, a very simple uh, observation. Um, the famous uh, British historian Eric Hobsbawm has uh, once estimated uh, that before World War II, the total number of students uh, in, uh, the, uh, in Germany, France, and the UK was less than 150,000. 
150,000 students in these three countries before World War II. Today, if you consider the greater metropolitan area, Munich, we have more than 100,000 students just in this area. In the greater area of London, you have uh, roughly 400,000 students. There's an estimate that in the year 2000, there were about 100 million students worldwide. And there is a prediction that in 2035, there will be 500 million, more than 500 million students worldwide. Therefore, this is, you can see from this yet that you had an enormous growth uh, of the university system over the last 50, 60, 70 years, um, and uh, uh, almost an explosion. And you can see this uh, as a kind of huge success story. Universities have become more and more important. In many countries, it is the case uh, that more than 50% of any cohort of young people attend universities, and this growth has still is uh, increasing. For example, in Germany, uh, 30 years, uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, only 20% of a cohort attended um, higher, used higher edu education. Today, it's uh, more than 50%. Therefore, that's an, a, a, a very fascinating development. As I said before, it's a kind of, um, uh, it's a kind of huge uh, success story which you can write of the university. University is surely one of the uh, institutions which has extremely successfully uh, developed in the 20th century and, and the beginning of the 21st uh, century. So when we ask what are the factors behind this uh, success of universities and what is the reason uh, for this uh, huge increase in, in, in student numbers, this uh, explosion, you might say. Well, there are many reasons why students attend universities, um, uh, but uh, as an economist, my feeling is always uh, that there are probably also very practical economic reasons behind this, and this is, of course, that students expect uh, uh, to gain additional knowledge uh, and uh, to qualify, to better qualify for the job market. Therefore, they expect uh, better perspectives, improved perspectives, uh, uh, and opportunities on the job market. In economic terms, you can calculate the potential demo benefit uh, of uh, higher education uh, by the so-called college wage premium. This indicates what is the value of higher education relative to not attending a university. And this college wage premium is uh, defined as a ratio uh, between the wage or the income uh, of somebody with uh, a degree, let's say a bachelor, let's say a master, let's say a PhD, relative uh, to the income uh, and the or the wage of a person without a degree. Therefore, a very simple concept, essentially. And uh, if you go in 2009, for example, one study for the United States shows, for example, that this college wage premium uh, amounted to about 80%. This means if somebody without a degree earns, uh, on average, uh, $30,000, then somebody with a degree would earn 54000 dollars, therefore a difference of $24,000. This is calculated for many countries and uh, roughly you will get similar values that varies uh, a bit uh, depending on various factors. I will later uh, talk a little bit more in detail. I have looked up a study for Japan 
what is the college wage premium uh, for Japan? Of course, I'm not, not an expert uh, on uh, Japanese uh, educational and labor markets, uh, but it turns out uh, that the uh, college wage premium in Jap Japan is roughly 20, 30 percent, something like that. If you calculate this, and you keep in mind that this is calculated on an annual basis, so if you earn this premium every year from, from now on, then it's very clear that even if you deduct the cost of higher education, of, att of attending a university, uh, on average, uh, uh, higher education is extremely, uh, has an extremely high economic uh, benefit. And this explains, of course, why so many people uh, go to college and, and uh, attend universities. It's, uh, it, uh, make, it uh, guarantees you, on average, I will say a little bit more on this, uh, on average, uh, a relative high rate of return. Therefore, that's very attractive. Um, and, uh, but before you send your kids to university, you should keep in mind three caveats uh, which are important in understanding these kind of premia. Um, the first one, which, uh, which is important, um, uh, is, and that's also uh, important for the later discussion, is it turns out that college wage premia vary significantly over time. Therefore, you have suddenly increases, then it goes down, then it goes up again. Therefore, there's a lot of variation over time uh, in uh, college wage premia. We'll not discuss the reason. We can turn to this question uh, later in the discussion. But that's a very interesting phenomenon that college wage premia are not stable. You cannot always say my college wage premium is 50%. No, it varies between 30% and sometimes 70 80% if you consider the data for the United States uh, used in a, stat, a stat, in a famous study by uh, Katz and uh, Golden. The second uh, uh, variation which is interesting and the second caveat uh, you have a lot of variation across academic fields. This does not come as a surprise, essentially. Uh, if you are doing computer science, your college wage premium is higher than if you are doing ancient history. Therefore, that's, uh, that's not really surprising, that, but uh, there is a lot of variation. Therefore, you cannot expect uh, if you uh, enter an academic field which is uh, with, with low demand in terms of, uh, of the labor markets that you will earn a high, high college wage premium. Then you have, if you really want to have a high premium, you have to enter fields like engineering, computer science, and of course, not surprising, medicine. Uh, these are the fields which, which um, yield the, higher, the highest uh, uh, college wage premium. The third point, and that's probably the most important caveat, um, you have also a, a very high variation of college, college wage premium across individuals. And uh, therefore, all, all what I've talked about is basically our average premium, uh, which you can calculate. The problem is the average doesn't say too much uh, about the individual. And this problem is sometimes called the uh, so-called uh, Bill Gates effect. What does the Bill Gates effect mean? Uh, now, if you uh, consider a pub, people are sitting there drinking beer, and on average, uh, these people have an income of, uh, let's say, $30,000. Okay, fine. Suddenly, Bill Gates enters a pub, orders, sits down, and orders a beer and suddenly average income goes up to $3 million. 
And therefore, that's just the average if you calculate it. In, in mathematical terms, it's the average, but uh, it doesn't say uh, too much about uh, the individual income, not even of Bill Gates, actually, because he average only earns $3 million. Uh, also, in fact, his uh, income is uh, far higher. And therefore, that's a problem that you cannot uh, draw too much conclusions about from, from average figures about uh, the actual uh, income of, uh, of people. And uh, there, is a there are several studies which have analyzed this in more detail. And for example, it turns out if you consider the 25% uh, graduates uh, with the lowest income, their college wage premium is close to zero, actually. Therefore, there are individuals who attend university, leave university with a degree, but later earn a very, very small premium, if any a premium at all. Therefore, that's uh, uh, what one has to keep in mind when one talks about this kind of premium. The interesting question, of course, if, you keep, if I've told before, I've said before that you have uh, this variation of time. What will happen to the college wage premium in the future? Now, there are several arguments in this respect and an extensive discussion. For example, Larry Summers, um, um, uh, the former president of Harvard University and treasury secretary in the Clinton administration, uh, has argued that the college wage premium will decline in the future dramatically. And his argument is very simple. He says, what will happen? More people will, attend, uh, will try to attend university. This will increase the supply of graduates. Therefore, their, their wages will tend to decline. On the other hand, the number of people without uh, a degree uh, declines uh, over time, which tends to increase their wages. Therefore, there will become some kind of egalization, and the college wage premium will shrink, which is, of course, bad news for university in the long run, because this means because one important motive to attend universities will vanish. Well, that's a matter of debate. How strong are these effects? Are For economists, uh, then you have to calculate something like the elasticity of substitution and uh, all these nice concepts, uh, and that's a matter of debate. There are other ones which are far more optimistic um, than uh, Larry Summers. Um, but the college wage premium, and that's the reason why I discuss this case, is also important, maybe uh, strongly affected uh, by digitalization for, for several reasons. One of the arguments uh, in the is that uh, artificial intelligence and other developments uh, will in particular endanger white collar uh, occupations like lawyers, like accountants, like uh, well, that's basically white coat uh, occupations, radiologists, and, and many other uh, professions uh, which are still uh, very much uh, today still very attractive, but they might uh, face uh, see a significant reduction uh, in their attractiveness uh, in the future. And uh, I'll give you just one example from Germany. Munich. In Munich, we have headquarters uh, of several large uh, insurance companies uh, like Allianz, Munich Re, and other ones. And if you talk to the executives at these companies, they are expecting that their staff will significantly shrink in the future because most of what is done today by persons will be done uh, by uh, Watson and other programs uh, which will be used. Therefore, they are expecting a significant uh, decline in, 
uh, in employment uh, of academics, and that's of course a high risk for for uh, the future of uh, employment uh, of uh, academics. Uh, well, nobody knows whether this will happen. Uh, in the past, uh, uh, it has always turned out better. This is a very old debate we always had in economics, whether technological innovation, rationalization might induce uh, a loss in jobs. Uh, um, there are a lot of fears in this respect, but the experience so far, that doesn't say anything about the future, but the historical experience has always been that you have a technological change which reduces, of course, uh, employment in the first round, but also creates new job opportunities. For example, if you see, uh, if you see employment in industry has declined over time, but we have created uh, many new jobs uh, in the services. Therefore, most economies, large economies today, are no longer uh, industrialized countries, uh, but uh, have a lot of uh, less employment in industry, but far more employment uh, in the area. Of, um, uh, of services. Therefore, concerning this, I would be quite optimistic uh, that uh, college wage premia will remain high in the future and uh, will be, uh, therefore it will be attractive uh, to attend university in the future uh, uh, as well. Um, that is one aspect. Therefore, I do not think that the digitalization will affect uh, the um, attractiveness uh, of uh, uh, of higher education and uh, of tertiary education, I would, in this respect, I would be quite uh, quite optimistic. Another question is, what are the what will be the effects uh, of uh, all these online learning tools uh, on uh, higher education uh, at universities? Um, uh, five years ago, I would have answered this question. Uh, uh, probably in the way that I would have said, uh, well, there will be dramatic changes uh, due to all these new innovations like massive open online courses, MOOCs, uh, online universities, uh, inverted classrooms, and uh, and so on. Um, today, after we have experienced these de these developments at our university, I'm quite confident uh, that of that. Online learning will clearly change teaching at universities, uh, but it will not fundamentally change uh, the university landscape. Therefore, the idea that we will have no longer any residential learning and everything will be presented in online courses, I do not think that this will happen. Actually, therefore, I think the effect um, of online learning on the primary objectives, on the primary existence of uh, universities will not be uh, particularly large in, in, in many respects. Um, maybe uh, you see this differently. Uh, we, we can return to this point uh, in the discussion. Let me finally say a couple of words um, on, res on the second question on research. Um, research, um, we have seen this growth in, in the student numbers. You have a similar growth uh, in terms of uh, research. Um, again, a couple of simple figures. In the 1950s, um, um, there were an annual publication of papers in the area of science and engineering of 50,000 papers. 50,000 papers were annually published. In 2008, this number was 800,000. In 2013, it was 1.4 million. 
This increase from 2008 to 2014, of course, reflects uh, the impact of China in the, in the academic world. So you see a huge expansion of, uh, of research uh, publications worldwide, um, and this raises several questions for the, for the future. One question is very obvious. As a university pres uh, president, I must always say more research, more funding for research is good. But it's very clear. If you have 1.4 million papers a year, so at some point you must ask, what is the optimal size uh, of, the, of the scientific sector? Is it 2 million papers per year? 3 million, 4 million, or is 1.4 million enough? Therefore, that's a question somehow we have, uh, we have to ask this question, we have to answer it. That's one, one aspect. Therefore, we will surely have something like diminishing returns uh, uh, in terms of scientific activities, and, and that will, at some point, we will have this discussion, I'm quite sure, about this um, in, in many respects. The second problem we have, and that's probably more, more difficult, uh, that is uh, the... Uh, um, that this huge volume of research has obviously created, uh, uh, at least in some areas, significant quality problems. You have uh, problems uh, concerning, uh, you have an increase in retractions, uh, you have, uh, in many respects, uh, problems um, with, uh, for example, the method of peer review to allocate research funding and to decide about publications uh, is under critique in, in many respects. You have uh, a lot of methodological problems in terms of statistics and, and data science. All this um, is raised. Therefore, this, these are serious challenges uh, which uh, universities um, have to tackle in the, in the future to make sure that the quality of the research process uh, uh, is uh, maintained. Finally, another problem which you face in, in terms of research is uh, what is called the so-called burden of knowledge problem. Uh, th this means the following. Uh, um, if young people enter now science, uh, it takes them a lot of time uh, to get to the frontiers of knowledge because they, are so much, uh, they have so much to learn uh, to adapt to this and they have to specialize uh, very, uh, very strongly in many respects uh, to, uh, to make their academic career. Therefore, academic careers take longer and become riskier due to higher specialization. That's another problem which is uh, very often uh, mentioned in uh, uh, many in many respects. And finally, you have uh, problems, uh, you will probably talk about this uh, later on in more details, of open science. And uh, one final aspect which, which I would like to mention is uh, the whole issue of uh, open access. Um, uh, open access uh, is a movement um, which uh, has now been taken up by the European Union and uh, this in Germany. The basic idea of open access is uh, a fundamental change uh, in uh, the financing of publishing. Uh, the basic uh, Today, publishing uh, financing of, um, of of scientific uh, public uh, the financing of scientific publishing is organized in the way basically uh, you submit a paper and finally uh, the uh, the uh, journal is financed by selling subscriptions uh, to the readers. Uh, moving to open access means that you ch change this completely. In the future, universities or the scientists have to pay for the publication, and readers get the journals 
for free. As an economist, I must say this is a perfect system because uh, scientific knowledge is what we call a pure public good and therefore that's a perfect way uh, to organize uh, the provision of, uh, uh, of, the, of, of, of knowledge in many respects. Um, uh, as a university president, I see things slightly differently uh, because I now have to pay for it. And um, uh, while my heart is uh, on the economist side, uh, my head is actually uh, on the, of course, uh, I'm a president, therefore I'm a, I see a lot of problems due to this uh, development um, because what we now learn from this uh, transition to open access uh, in Germany is that you will have a massive redistribution uh, across institution which involves a huge amounts of financing. And you have two types of redistribution which happens. The first one uh, is uh, between universities, or you can say the public sector, between universities as a major institution, and that also includes non-university research institutes as well. You have a redistribution between universities and, of course, the private sector. The private sector, for example, all these hospitals, all these engineering firms, all these lawyers uh, will no longer pay anything for their, for their journals. They will read this for free, which the economic, uh, from an economic point of view, is entirely okay, um, uh, but of course their payments have to be raised by uh, by the universities. Therefore, there is an additional financial burden uh, for the universities, and that has somehow to be financed. That's very expensive. Second problem, uh, which is also somewhat severe, is. Uh, and that makes uh, a joint position of universities very difficult, that even among the universities you have different groups. You have universities, uh, well, how should I say it, um, uh, to be polite, you have universities which concentrate on reading, uh, and you have uh, universities concentrating on, on writing. And those universities uh, which concentrate on, uh, uh, on reading, uh, of course they benefit from open access. Suddenly they do not pay, have to pay anything for the subscriptions of their journal and they really like this development. And you have universities uh, like mine which uh, are very research intensive and these research intensive universities uh, pay uh, significantly um, uh, higher amounts and uh, in Germany you have uh, basically uh, well, let me say, let me be, be um, I, I do not want to exaggerate. You have uh, five universities uh, which are significantly hit uh, by moving to uh, open access, have a massive uh, burden, uh, which is just shifting the funding from, uh, for, uh, for due to open access, while many other universities benefit or are not, not particularly uh, strongly affected. Therefore, open access is uh, a huge problem for us. That is one of the challenges uh, uh, of the digital age which, uh, which we face, where we have no uh, easy solution. Otherwise, I'm very optimistic concerning demand of, of students. I think uh, uh, that uh, the prospects uh, of universities in general are, are really great. Um, I think all these other problems in research, these quality problems, can be handled uh, because everybody has an interest uh, to ensure the quality, uh, the overall quality of the research process and of um, research um, outcomes. Uh, 
But uh, some of the other problems like open access and in my view, open science also, I'm not an expert on this, but you will uh, discuss this in probably in more detail. Uh, these raise uh, serious issues and, and, and problems. Thank you. I think I've had my time. Uh, thank you for the kind introduction, and uh, thank you for inviting me to talk, uh, to give a talk here, especially after President Huber. And I'm just a researcher in higher education, so um, it's a great honor to be able to talk, to give a talk here. So um, I'm interested in how the digitization is impacting the higher education sphere, and I will give a brief, in, uh, not maybe not brief, but I have 70 slides, so <laughs> I will dash through it. <laughs> but uh, I will give you an uh, try to give you an overview of what I think it, how it is impacting. And because uh, it's quite long, uh, I, I want to make my argument in the fir first uh, so that uh, it doesn't fade away. Okay, so uh, my argument is uh, the digitization process had greater impact on higher education than mere, tri uh, mere digitization. Uh, the current higher education reform is first accelerated through digitization process but especially when openness and quantitative measures come into play, digitization has impacts and challenges the traditional higher education's value system, forcing the elite university to become a more universal university. And uh, my proposal is, isn't it time to reconsider higher education fit for the 20, 21st century with the digital enablers in play? And uh, this is a rough sketch how digitization is impacting uh, the higher education sphere. So in the first, uh, first period, in trial period, uh, digitization, um, digital tools or digital digitization is um, um, brought into the higher education, mainly replacing the physical actions to digital. But then uh, at some point, opening up digital contents come into play, and then some quantitative measures come also into play, and which, uh, both of which cause some disruption in higher education sphere. And before, uh, I want to explain this by two uh, case studies, but before I do so, uh, I want to explain how the higher education is uh, is what kind of uh, challenges the higher education is uh, facing right now. And what I have uh, been observing at the University of Tokyo Center administration with my administration. So um, the higher education um, <coughs> in, in the world is facing uh, the issues, uh, is challenged by the globalization, marketization, and massification of higher education. And with the globalization, especially for the German universities, I think uh, you know the Bologna proce process, which are to kind to try to standardize the university higher education system and align it with sort of um, to the US uh, university system. Uh, the world university rankings had great impact on the universities. Universities were mainly some scholars, a uh, group of scholars and maybe, may, maybe also some national good, but never competing globally 
Now we are uh, competing globally with the university, uh, um, world university rankings, even though our structure is completely different from country to country. And it's, it really does not make sense uh, to um, compare the universities with these uh, indices, but still uh, we are competing for it. Um, we are talking about marketization uh, with this neoliberal um, liberalism. And uh, universities who are mainly based on common sense building and in decision making. But now you are, uh, university administration are asked to agile university management and you are acting much more like a company and the president's uh, role is to manage the university. And, <coughs> and uh, what's more, the massification of higher education uh, President Huber uh, told already uh, that we have now much more massive uh, student body. Um, I'm not sure how, in how, as how much you know about Martin Trow's uh, theory uh, that the university's character is going to change by the uh, growing enrollment rate. Um, when the uh, higher education enrollment rate is below 50%, it's an un elite university. But when uh, the enrollment uh, rate uh, go, uh, goes bigger, then uh, it becomes um, the students are getting much more diverse, and uh, they think that it is a right to um, be become educated. And uh, the university governance also changes to more uh, corporate-like style. And because uh, we were in the Humboldt-style um, <coughs> research university, now we are uh, teaching the mass body. And also with the lifelong learning, we are also, um, this is the age, and we are trying, more, uh, trying to have more and more to people to get into the university. And that's uh, how the education uh, goes. Um, <coughs> we, we cannot just teach academic t uh, teaching, but we have to also to shift to vocational and literacy-based education. Uh, the other aspect of higher education massification is uh, that it had very tremendous financial uh, um, aspect. Um, <coughs> because higher education was designed more for the elite universe, for the elite, 50% of the student uh, population, uh, and now we have massive student body, uh, the higher education budget is not keeping up. So it means uh, we have less resource for one student, but because uh, the student body is now getting diverse, um, so you need to have um, different style of education for um, students, and it, it means doing more with less resource. And also uh, accountability issues come into play because uh, there are so many people coming in, into universities. So that's a rough uh, picture uh, of higher education and what I have seen at the University of Tokyo is that the university administration is just overwhelmed just with dealing with these kind of uh, um, challenges and have never thought about the impact of digitization. What has been done for the digitization in the past in the universities? 
is in the 1950s, it was a very uh, introduction of electronic computers into um, university. In 70s and 80s, uh, the um, supercomputers and workstations were brought in. In 1990s, the uh, personal computers were brought in. And, <coughs> and after that, as you know, uh, many people are communicating um, through the digital, device, uh, digital tools, communication tools. And uh, as you see, uh, these kind of developments in the university had, had, has never been really discussed at the university presidency level. It was happening, but it was not in relation with the university reform as a whole. Now I want to give you two case studies, one in education and one in scholarly communication, um, how the <coughs> digitalization has impacted the higher education and how it is also affecting our value system. Um, as you know, MOOCs, uh, Massive Open Online Courses, um, <coughs> it was brought into play by Harvard, MIT, Berkeley, and two Stanford professors in 2012. And it really spread out in the world um, in 2013 and 2014. But after 2015, we don't hear about it so much anymore. And, <coughs> and uh, the, uh, m many of the universities outside the US uh, were jumping in because it was kind of fashionable and it was raising the visibility so much. But in the United States, uh, the reason why MOOCs came into play was different. Um, United States was facing a very severe uh, shrinking higher education budget, after the, especially after the Lehman shock. And um, because the state funding was uh, becoming <coughs> less and less, there was budget cuts of over 10% every year in the United States. Uh, they had to raise the tuition, and they could also not uh, uh, give enough courses to the university. This is uh, the uh, figure of uh, California community colleges. And you see, after 2008, the number of credits uh, they could offer is declining very much. Uh, the red part is the number of the temporary academics uh, which are giving the lectures, and they were just laying off or not laying off, not just not asking the next year to serve, uh, to give a course. So that's how the courses were uh, really declining. And there were many students who couldn't resist a for course and to graduate from the university because they just couldn't resist. Uh, there were not enough courses provided from the university. And this was the time when MOOCs uh, were introduced in the United States. So, and MOOCs are for free and uh, it's massive. Everyone can attend at the same time. So it was the perfect solution for the government um, to regard MOOCs as uh, a free course provide provision without hiring any lecturers at the universities and for uh, nothing. So there were uh, California beer seeking campus credit for MOOCs and there were also experiments by East American uh, Council for Education and um, 
recommending uh, that MOOCs should be for credit and so on. So this is why um, <laughs> MOOCs were so much, uh, su such a hit in the United States. Um, but soon after that, people realized um, that MOOCs are not really uh, leading to credits. And people are seeing that the retention rate was, uh, the drop out rate was very high. And also people f found out uh, that to produce a one MOOC, uh, you need about 100 to 300,000 US dollar to create a MOOC and it's not cost effective enough. So um, <coughs> this is a survey for university uh, presidents uh, and how they would like to, uh, how they are thinking about MOOCs and many are saying, uh, um, many say they have no plan or they don't uh, want to introduce MOOCs anymore and so on. Anyway, uh, MOOC was not a big success, but still it, uh, into, um, it, it triggered many new ways of teaching. And uh, as um, uh, Professor uh, Huber already said, there was also discussion about the flipped classroom, using the MOOCs as a, t a textbook, and then having the course uh, t a classroom more vivid with active learning. Um, there was also talks about learning, ana learning analytics you have now much more diverse student body and you want to teach everyone uh, in the best way um, um, fit for the um, student and um, with this online learning tool you could do it. Um, Arizona State University is particularly famous for it and uh, President uh, Michael Cole is uh, says uh, we measure ourselves not by who we exclude but rather uh, by who we include and how they succeed. So uh, he was designing the university to include as much as possible, uh, as many as possible students within the university um, using the um, online, tool, online tools and in, afterwards he was also introducing the Global Freshman Academy with edX um, so uh, the first year, first year of the university was for free and also he was providing the remedial education using this adaptive uh, technology uh, and to meet, uh, to meet the demands of every student's needs. And there was an e-advisor for course selection. Um, there was also uh, <coughs> new developments in um, kind of vocational training. So if you want to uh, have, a, um, want to teach someone who is already working in manufacturing, um, <coughs> the competencies are kind of stackable and well defined and you can just learn it through the online learning and test it and get the qualification. Uh, <laughs> this was mainly for the vocational training, but then uh, University of Wisconsin introduced this uh, University of Wisconsin flexible option, and there was option like all you can learn option. So you just pay $2,250 for all you can learn in three months. 
and they are not giving really courses. Um, they are just providing the online learning materials and the tests. And if you, um, if you take the test and if you succeed with the test, then you get the credit. So um, these kind of new models came out. Uh, you are seeing also um, <coughs> company and university cooperation in um, online learning. And uh, many companies are now um, giving training courses through MOOCs or through university online courses to their employees. Actually, last week, uh, there was the Walmart's $1 degree program for their, uh, their um, employees. And with this discussion, um, the university um, unbundling discussion came into play uh, because um, <coughs> so this is a MOOC course provided by two, university dif um, two different university professors, and now you don't need any more the university building or so. Uh, you can, and the um, student can collect the credits from different universities, which meets, meets his demand. And this is the final report, uh, the report of MIT, the future of MIT education, uh, where they were saying they, they, will, they are going to unbundle the courses and uh, that they, are, uh, they don't need any more the university buildings because uh, you are not, uh, or you don't have to be in the classroom to learn. You can also learn in cafe or everywhere. In, uh, where you want. And this uh, led to the serious discussion, uh, what is university? What, what is it if, if you have all, all the courses taken out of the university and if you don't need the professors or if you don't need the students to come into classroom, what is the universities for? So this is the teaching part, and I think I have to dash for the scholarly communication part. Um, the scholarly communication part also comes with the financial problem. Um, the um, academic journals price rose um, like this, uh, and it got four times uh, higher in just the last 20 years. And there have been tremendous uh, protests from the academia in the last 20 years or so. And uh, there was an epoch-making um, initiative in um, 2002, the Budapest Open Access Initiative, where they, de they decided to cope with the sub rising subscription cost by uh, making everything open access. And they proposed two ways. One is self-archiving into the repository, and one is uh, to create a new open access journal. And, um, and I don't want to discuss in detail about the open access issue, but um, this open access journal call, um, brought in some very new way to evaluate or to assess the research articles. Um, the, open, the first open access journal was PLOS One, Maybe you have also heard about it. And it is also called the mega journal. So if, it's, if journals are in print, you need to consider that you cannot have hundreds of articles in one volume. 
So uh, it's just 20, 20 articles in one volume. But if it's digital, you can put as many articles in one uh, volume. And then you don't need to um, reject articles which are kind of fair, but um, <coughs> maybe not excellent. But PLOS has the peer reviewing criteria that they are going to judge uh, the articles only on scientific soundness. So it's, it brought in a very new criteria in uh, higher education. Um, open access movement also had uh, um, impacts in, uh, in that, that, that the governmental agency or funding agency started to have and say uh, how research, research output uh, research should be uh, published uh, for the, by the academia. They were having these open access policies. And um, also the society, the public, wanted to have everything open access. And um, so the severe medical patient wanted to access the open access, uh, wanted to access the academic publication, but then found out that it was too expensive to, open, uh, to access the publication. But when, you, when they thought that uh, research activities are funded, funded by the taxpayers' money already. Why should they pay twice for the research output was the argument. And that led to, um, to the report, um, um, PubMed Central uh, by the NIH, where all publications are now available for free, which are fu uh, funded by NIH. We are also seeing um, <coughs> Um, private funders like Wellcome Trust or Bill Medinda Gates Foundation, uh, which are providing this kind of uh, publication platform where everything is going to be published after seven days already, and it is um, peer reviewed after the publication, so it's post peer review and it's open peer reviewing process. So uh, it's, it's not the academia who is. Um, setting the standards, but it's kind of outsiders who are saying uh, what should be done. And uh, when funders was uh, mandating the research publication to be made open, the next discussion was why not also ask for the research data to be to make open. And research data is the next oil um, in the 21st century. And it is also said uh, that um, the data-intensive science is an, a false paradigm of science. So it uh, has a great, tremendous effect. Um, Elsevier uh, is saying um, that they are changing from contents business to context business, um, meaning that in an open access world, they cannot make business by selling the contents anymore and they are going to be a platform provider. Now they are uh, buying out um, many ventures uh, throughout the research process, and after a while, I think uh, many of the researchers are trapped into the Elsevier's platform, and then, then they are going to charge the people for using the Elsevier platform, and we will be at loss. Um, if many of, from, uh, of you from um, <coughs> Germany may, might have heard about Plan S. 
which came out last September, and they are uh, asking um, <coughs> researchers to make everything uh, open access immediately after pu publication. And they are, in the first place, uh, they excluded the hybrid journals, which we means uh, this is a journal sphere, and open access journals is just 15.2% of all journals. And Plan S is forcing all um, researchers to publish just here. So it's kind of really violating the academic freedom of researchers and also destroying the young, career, young researchers' career. And now uh, they are saying uh, these hybrid journals should be flipped to open access journals. And which means uh, after three years, you will f uh, 60 percent of all journals would be open access journals requiring APCs. And as President Huber already said, um, that it is really uh, hitting hard financially very much uh, the universities. France uh, pointed out that uh, the um, Plan S shouldn't just talk about. Um, APC-based journals or subscription-based journals because there are many or, um, journal publishing platforms which are maybe governmentally funded or um, um, run by crowdsourcing of university libraries. For instance, in Japan, we have JSTAGE and also uh, our service, SINI, uh, where you can uh, <coughs> publish uh, academic articles for free. And uh, so they are saying, uh, they invented the term bibliodiversity that, and saying that there are diversity in journal publishing and, and which should be taken into recognition. And I think I will skip this uh, about the effect of the uh, quantitative measure with this uh, retraction watch and reproducibility crisis and predatory journals, <laughs> and uh, which caused um, a completely new way of peer reviewing that you uh, are just, um, you are already submitting with your research question an article, and if, if this, it is accepted, then, then you started your, start your experiments and research, and then uh, submit your report. So it's, there's a new way of doing it. Um, peer review fatigue is setting in and also these new ways of peer reviewing is there. And, um, and maybe you have also heard about DORA, uh, which is trying to say, um, <coughs> trying to eliminate the use of journal-based metrics, such as journal impact factor, because it is hurting. So um, <coughs> to conclude, um, I have shown, uh, uh, given you these uh, kind of steps, and uh, in, in teaching it would be first uh, introduction of online learning, but then with this uh, opening up of digital contents like Mo MOOCs or learning analytics, and also a quantitative measure with um, learn, uh, personalized learning and direct assessment of competency-based learning. Um, it is going it is kind of disrupting the um, higher education sphere, the education of higher education, the unbundling of higher education. And we are also not just um, 
trans, um, teaching the knowledge, but the teaching is now shifting much more to collaborative learning. Same uh, with research sphere. Uh, first, it was just digitization, making the print journal to e-journals, but then uh, open access journals were introduced, and I have uh, into, um, explained how the mega journals are and other factors are changing the peer reviewing system and the value system, what we value as, re as excellent research and so on. So these are all um, the dif different effects. And um, in the beginning, I have told you that the massification or, of higher educational globalization or marketization was triggering many university reforms, but then this digitization, um, measure, um, <coughs> digitization processes is kind of accelerating the change and kind of overtaking the reform. And um, <coughs> universities are not anymore the ivory in the ivory tower, but we have many stakeholders around, and uh, which are kind of demanding us to change to, towards open science. Uh, the traditional value system is kind of facing this kind of pressure from outside, and um, <coughs> and the academia has not anymore uh, the control. Um, the final point I would want to make is uh, <coughs> the um, massification of higher education uh, proposed by uh, Martin Troll was uh, based, uh, based on the theory that the enrollment, uh, that the growing enrollment rate is ch affecting the university teaching and the governance system. Um, the open science or the uh, research change is much more, um, comes afterwards because you see now more university graduates in the society which who know uh, how the university is acting and what the challenges are, and, the, and they have a greater say, and now they are also changing our research side. So this is my last slide, and saying, um, so higher education reform around uh, globalization, marketization, massification of higher education has almost saturated, and digitization process has started independently from higher education reform process, but then got to facilitate and accelerate the process. Um, digitization is even shaping the higher education in the future. So uh, why not consider this digitization impact and try to go ahead of it and think strategically of it? That's what we did. Thank you very much.